I'm Greg Boyd. I'm a teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. Good to see all of you here this morning. Fantastic being in worship with you. The joy of the Lord is our strength. I love that declaration that we are redeemed. The redeemed of the Lord say so. Say so. I gotta say it. All right. We are finishing up a series that we've been doing on relatives and relationships called Relatively Speaking. This is going to be the last of uh, the messages in this series. And we've been trying to look at all of our relationships through the lens of the kingdom. They have a distinctly kingdom perspective on all of our, our, our relationships. Um, and what we've seen is that in the first century in Palestine, as is true of most traditional cultures, uh, the father completely defined the family. The father had complete authority over the family. Everyone's primary allegiance was to the father as long as he's alive. That trumped all other allegiances. And the job of kids was to, as long as their father's alive, is to live in a way that brings honor to the father and the family, uh, that carries out the will of the father, and that expands the father's family uh, by uh, having kids, getting married, and having kids. Jesus applies that patriarchal paradigm, that father-centered paradigm, uh, to the kingdom of God, the reign of God. So that when a person submits to God, uh, and, and puts their trust in Jesus Christ, they, God becomes, in a unique way, their father. Uh, not just the supreme being anymore, but he becomes Abba, father. Abba is the Aramaic word that, uh, uh, that means dad or daddy. It's an intimate word. And we become, in, in a unique way, his children. We're born from above. We're born again. Uh, we're birthed by the Spirit. His DNA is poured into us. And uh, just as the earthly father defined the family in the first century, so also our heavenly father defines us. We're to get our total identity from uh, uh, what our father thinks about us, not from what people think about us or what we've achieved, what we accomplished, how rich we are, all that nonsense. Our, our whole sense of life and identity and worth is to be uh, grounded in what God thinks about us as he's revealed it on, on Calvary by, dying, by Jesus dying for us. And so he, the father defines us. And our ultimate allegiance is to be to Abba Father alone. That's to trump all other allegiances. No competition with that allegiance. And our job as Abba's children is to live in a way that brings honor to him or to glorify him. And to live in a way that carries out his will on earth as it is in heaven. And to live in a way that expands the family of God. Whether we're called to have children or to adopt children or we're all called to be inviting other people in on the faith. Um, and to grow the family that way. That's our job as, as uh, God's children. And so we've, we've looked at all these different relationships uh, through that lens, and today we're going to look at parenting, children and parenting, through the lens of the kingdom. We'll be giving principles here that apply to all of us in a lot of different situations, so even if you aren't parents or if your kids are, are already grown, as such as mine are, uh, I still encourage you to, to be paying attention to this because there's foundational kingdom principles that are going to permeate this whole thing. We're entitling this message, Abba and Abbasi. Abba and Abbasi, for reasons that won't become clear until the last 45 seconds of the message. Uh, and you see, that's why you'll remember it. So, so uh, lock it in there. Pray with me here uh, for a moment. Abba Father, I thank you for every person in this auditorium, every person listening through podcasts, watching it on television. Whatever it means, Lord, uh, they are here as part of this message. And, and our prayer, God, is that you, Heavenly Father, would infuse this message with, with your authority uh, to ride into our hearts and minds uh, and bring your kingdom, and to birth a, a, a greater depth of understanding of a kingdom. 
and, uh, and to kingdomize our life. We pray for parents, especially, God, that this message would be used to instruct them and to give them wisdom on raising these, these precious creations of yours. Holy Spirit, come invade this message. Let it be a kingdom event that furthers Abba's will on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, we pray and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Three basic points I want to make this morning. I had a, uh, it was kind of a frustrating message in some ways because I had to uh, shave off so much that could be said and to dis- distill it down to what can be said in, in, in 30, 35 minutes or so. And so uh, I, I wanted to look at three distinctly kingdom uh, angles on parenting. And the principles here will apply to all of us in different ways. The first thing has to do with, with uh, uh, the fact that in the kingdom, everything is to be done in community. Now, I know I say that a lot around here because it needs to be said a lot around here because community is foundational to the kingdom, and yet it's one of the most difficult countercultural aspects of the kingdom that we have in Western society anyways. We're so individualistic. Uh, and yet community, living in community with others, is foundational to everything the kingdom's about. And it applies in an especially important way to parenting. Here's the thing. We have in the West a, uh, this kind of model of the family as what's sometimes called the nuclear family. This is this, the Ozzie and Harriet model of the family. If you know who Ozzie and Harriet refer to, you're a very old person. <laughs> but it's the idea that, uh, you know, mom and dad have total responsibility for raising the kids, and dad's supposed to go out and bring home the bacon, and the mom is the primary caregiver. She's supposed to stay at home, and that they're, they're sort of isolated as, as the caregivers, um, if they have any community at all, it's maybe with the neighbors on a Friday night having a barbecue, but, but the, the whole responsibility for raising kids is with Ozzy and Harriet. That is, we need to know, a very new thing in history. It's unprecedented in history. Uh, it really began in the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, uh, but really uh, it didn't come into the form that it has now until after the Second World War. It's a very recent phenomenon in history. Traditionally, throughout history, um, the mother and father were the primary caregivers of their children, but by no means the only caregivers. The mother and father both raised the children, and the mother and father both supported the family. The idea that uh, women joining the workforce as a result of the feminist revolution of the 60s and 70s, and I hear Christians say that a lot, but as a matter of fact, um, women have always been part of the workforce. It's just that they didn't have to go outside the home to do it, but they, everyone's job was to, to support the family, and both the mother and father had the responsibility of raising the children. Uh, but they were embedded in a community. Traditionally, they never had the sole responsibility of raising their children. They're part of a village. They're part of a tribe. And traditionally, the entire tribe took responsibility for raising all the children of the tribe. They're embedded in community. There's an old African proverb, I'm sure most of us have heard it before, uh, and it's that it takes a village to raise a child. And that does reflect the mindset of most people throughout history. It takes a village to raise a child. Uh, now, this became kind of controversial in the 90s. Some of you may recall Hillary Clinton wrote a book uh, with that title on it. It takes a village to raise a child. And it was controversial because she wrapped it up with some political agendas. And then Rick Santorum, Senator Rick Santorum, wrote a rebuttal to it called It Takes a Family, not a tribe. It takes a family to raise a child. And the truth of the matter is that it certainly takes a family to raise a child, but all of history is on the side of the African proverb. 
It also takes a village to raise a child. What's happened with our nuclear family model, what's happened with our Ozzie and Harriet model of the family is that we've lost the support of the village. Uh, now, the total responsibility, on the whole, the total responsibility for raising children is on the, the, the mother and father. Um, and and it, it, all the stress is there. puts tremendous stress on them. Sometimes there's grandparents who play some role, and I, I thank God I know of, of some grandparents at Woodland Hills Church who play a real strong role in raising the children. And sometimes there's an extended family that has some role, and sometimes there's friends who have a role. But on the whole, throughout the country, the mother and father bear the whole weight of raising children. And for single parents, that's doubled or tripled. I don't know how on earth you do it. Hats off to you. Uh, it's, it's just tremendous stress put on you. All the responsibility is with the, 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 the mother and the father. And then add to that the fact that most American families have to some degree bought into the, the sort of chase the American dream myth. Uh, and so they spend a, a great deal of time chasing after stuff and chasing after better stuff. Uh, living financially strapped, that adds a great deal of stress. Then on top of that, that many American families feel it's their the parents feel like they owe it to their kids to give them the best stuff and the, 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 the newest stuff and more stuff. And, and so they're chasing the American dream in that way, and that adds further stress. And then add to that this new phenomenon we've had in the last couple decades of sort of this middle-class soccer mom mentality where parents think they owe it to their children to expose them to every possible opportunity that life could ever afford them. And so they spend every night of the week running around uh, driving the kids to soccer practice or football practice or badminton practice or piano lessons or guitar lessons or trombone lessons or chess club or debate club or, or what have you. Uh, but they, they want to offer everything to their kids because who knows, maybe Johnny will turn out to be a genius in this one area and you don't want to miss that opportunity. And so they're running all over the place trying to give their kids every opportunity in the world uh, that life could ever afford them. And so at the end of the day, the kids are often plugged into continually updating their Facebook pages or they're texting their friends or they're playing their video games or they're watching television and, and mom and dad are so exhausted they don't have quality time for one another or quality time for their kids, let alone quality time to build kingdom relationships with other adults. And in that, given all of that, an Aussie Harriet model of the family combined with all these stresses, time-consuming stressors in our life, it's not surprising that most parents feel somewhat unfulfilled in their parenting and in life in general. It's not surprising that, that many husbands and wives begin to feel alienated from one another because they don't spend quality time together. It's not surprising that they begin to feel alienated from their kids. They feel like they have shallow relationships with their kids. It's not surprising that, that many parents, Christian parents, don't feel like they're passing on kingdom values to their kids. They're just not being caught because that takes time. It's not surprising that for most American Christian families, there's not a real distinct kingdom quality to the family. They go to church, perhaps, they pray sometimes, but there's not a, dis a distinct kingdom feel to it. Because that takes time. And time's the one thing we don't have with all these stressors and when we're bearing the total responsibility for raising kids. We hear a lot today about uh, family values, especially in conservative Christian circles. We hear a lot about family values, being for the family, pro-family. And a lot of the stuff that is said uh, by folks in that camp is good and, and, and necessary. But 
So far as I can tell, for the most part, it, it's based on, it, it, it presumes a nuclear model of the family, the Ozzie and Harriet model of the family, as though that was somehow a Christian model of the family. And it is so not. Uh, it, it, it's, as I look at our culture, Western culture in general, American culture in particular, uh, what I see is, to a large degree, frankly, to be honest with you, a curse. Uh, it, it, we have, to a large degree, bought into uh, a demonic strategy of kind of divide and conquer, a demonic strategy of isolation. And as I look at this culture, we've, to a large degree, bought into a demonic strategy of chasing the American dream, and those two things together are fragmenting our whole culture. They're isolating people. Families are isolated from their tribe. And individuals are now isolated from other individuals as we're chasing this American dream, locked into our own little you know, self-enclosed worlds. It reminds me of, of uh, C.S. Lewis's vision of hell in, in his marvelous book, The Great Divorce. If you have never read that, I encourage you to do so. It's full of insight. But his idea of hell is people continually moving away from one another. Continued isolation, self-enclosed, self that is what's happening in America and in Western culture in general. Folks, the truth is that the African proverb was right. It takes a village. It takes a village to raise a child. More than that, it takes a village to grow kingdom disciples. It takes a village to manifest the beauty of the kingdom. It takes a village for people to swim upstream in the culture and manifest the, the countercultural beauty of the kingdom of God. It takes a village. And so I encourage parents and I encourage all of us to start thinking tribally. I encourage all of us to declare war on this demonic strategy of isolation and this demonic strategy of chasing the American dream. Parents, I encourage you, in fact, I encourage all of us to slow down, to slow down, stop chasing stuff. The reality is, parents, you don't owe it to your kids to show them every opportunity, to expose them to every opportunity that life could afford them. That's unrealistic. No one in history has been able to do that. It's unrealistic. And parents, you don't owe your kids to give them the best stuff and the most stuff to keep up with their peers. You don't owe them that. Parents, what you owe your kids, what you owe your kids is to create space in your life and space in their life where you can hang out together. Parents, what you owe your kids is is, is to, to create space where you can begin to teach them and, and, and get to in, involved in their life and, and, and love them and, and to let your kingdom values wear off on them because kingdom values can't be taught. They can be taught, but they've got to be caught. And that takes time. It takes living uh, space together. Parents, what you owe your kids is to model what it looks like for, for a couple or if you're a single parent, for a person to swim upstream against this culture and to declare war on on the demonic strategy of isolation and the demonic strategy of chasing the American dream. Parents, what you owe your kids is to model what it looks like for, for people to make space in their life for their family and to make space in your life to have quality time with one another. Couples, kids got to see that you have time for one another. The life doesn't revolve around them. They need to see that. The parents get to have a life. Parents, you get to have a life. You need to have a life to spend time together, to hold the marriage strong. And, and kids need to see you model what it looks like for people to have space in their life for, for, for community, to spend time with others uh, and, and, and manifesting the kingdom of God and building kingdom relationships. All of us, we need to start thinking tribally. So we need the help of the village. And so I encourage you, if you're in a small group, 
uh, to be asking the question with others in your small group, how can we go deeper? How can we begin to shoulder uh, responsibilities in each other's lives? How can we begin to help raise each other's kids? How can we help each other out financially? Begin to explore ways of going deeper in that, to build a little village there that puts on display the values of the kingdom. And if you're not in a small group, I encourage you to be living in the question, how do I build relationships with others? To begin to let people in on your life and they let you in on their life. Uh, look for ways of getting connected. Maybe join one of the temporary small groups that we have when we go through series like this. Uh, maybe get on the table, uh, which is our internet uh, kind of connection place, and, and meet people that way. Maybe go to Immerse, which if you're 20 or 30, uh, whether you're married or single, go to Immerse and meet people that way, or just out in the gathering area. Uh, meet people and invite someone over for, for dinner, or, or maybe take the Discover Woodland Hills class, or, or the Discover the Kingdom class that we offer a couple times a year. Whatever it takes, by whatever means, uh, be connecting with other people, because the reality is the kingdom is all about community. And we need a village if we're going to be growing in the kind of kingdom way that God wants us to grow in. That was point number one, it takes a village. Number two, we need to parent our kids Abba style. Have a, a God methodology in raising our children. Paul says this in, in Ephesians uh, chapter 6. He says, fathers. Now he's talking to fathers because in the first century fathers had all the authority. Uh, but today we would apply it to fathers and mothers. Fathers and mothers, parents, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That word is translated Exasperate, para or gizzo, comes from uh, the prefix para, which means down under, and orge, which is the word for anger. It literally means heat, hot anger. So para orge is anger that has gone down under. It's internal anger. We can sometimes translate it bitterness. And so what Paul is saying here is, parents, don't raise your kids in a way that they're going to become embittered towards you. They'll have seething anger towards you. One of the ways that I think we sometimes raise kids that installs bitterness in them is when we squish them. When we squish them with our authority. When we raise them uh, with just a kind of a mindset of, I told you so, because I said so. And we just use sheer authority to get them to uh, behave in a certain way. When we just parent by virtue of our authority, what happens is that as they grow older, there's a part of them, it's part of their being made in the image of God, a part of them that gets squished with that, and it causes bitterness. The reality is that God made us persons. Persons. And to be a person means you are, you're self-determining. It means that you're free. You've got choices. It means that you are capable of making morally responsible choices. And one of the primary jobs of parents is to raise kids who can make morally responsible choices. But that's the very thing that we're not letting them do if we always parent with this just sheer authority, because I said so. God creates us free and gives us responsibilities and then uh, spells out the consequences of our choices. So in the garden, for example, he makes Adam and Eve, he gives them responsibility, which is to care for the earth and to take care of the animals. That's still one of our primary responsibilities. Uh, and, and then he gives them a choice. That's what that tree represents. A tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You have a choice here. God wants us to uh, do life his way, but we don't have to do it his way. And if we don't do it his way, here are the consequences. And the consequences are negative. But he lets us go that way if that's what we're going to choose. 
And it's by the consequences of our wrong behavior that we learn that it's in our interest to do it the right way, to go according to God's way. This is what we find throughout the whole Bible. Throughout the whole Bible. God's always giving people choices. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. has all the authority. But he doesn't use it to micro-control us. Instead, he gives us choices, and then he spells out the consequences. And the negative consequences that we experience, the people throughout biblical history experience, are meant, they bring judgment, which is just, but they're also meant to redeem us, to teach us, to discipline us. It's just the way God created the world that certain behaviors lead to certain consequences, and those consequences are, are the lesson. They teach us, they instruct us. Uh, a passage that I think really captures uh, this aspect of, of God's way of running the world is, is Psalms uh, 7, where we read this. Those who are pregnant with evil conceive trouble and give birth to disillusionment. disillusionment. Those who dig a hole and scoop it out fall into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. Now, look at this. God made the world in a way where certain behaviors bring about certain consequences. There's a natural cause and effect relationship here. Um, it's as natural as if you conceive of evil, you're going to give birth to disillusionment, conception and birth. Uh, if you dig a hole with a malicious intent, you're going to fall into that very hole. If, if you're going to act violently towards someone, it's in the moral order of the universe that eventually it's going to recoil back on you. As Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you'll, you'll die by the sword. Those are the negative consequences of certain behaviors, and God gives us the freedom to choose that and to experience those consequences. So we read throughout the Bible that you reap what you sow. Uh, if you reject the light, guess what? You'll find yourself in darkness. And over and over again in the Bible, we find God uh, giving people over. It says that he, he gives them over to their sin, gives them over to experience the consequences of the decisions that they make. This is how I think God always brings about judgment and discipline throughout the Bible. In fact, uh, this book I'm working on now, Crucifixion of the Warrior God, I'm dealing with uh, the violent pictures of God in the Old Testament. And what I found here is this, that at least in many of the passages, even passages that uh, ascribe violence to Yahweh, that said, Yahweh smote Israel. And so you have this picture of God acting violently. If you read the text carefully, you'll often find that, as a matter of fact, God didn't do anything violent there. Um, what happened is that the Assyrians smote Israel, or the Babylonians smote Israel. It was violent agents who acted violently. What happened on God's end was this. Uh, his people were violent, and he allows the violence to recoil back on them. Uh, his people reject him, and he, he spelled out the consequences before. He says, if you reject me, your protection's off, and now your enemies are going to have a field day with you. And there comes a point where if people reject him persistently, God grants them their wish. And that is their judgment. And so violence comes upon them. Not because God's doing it, but because other agents are doing it, and these people have rejected God. In any case, God gives us choices and allows us to experience the consequences of those choices. Uh, in, in this book, I'm calling it Divine Aikido. You ever heard of Aikido? Uh, Aikido is this martial arts technique. Uh, I was actually going to start practicing this until my neck got screwed up, and so I can't. But but it's, it's, a, it's a martial arts technique where you take the aggression of whoever's coming at you and you don't respond with violence or aggression. You rather have masterful techniques of, uh, of, of channeling their, their aggression back on themselves. Wah! See? Wah! 
I, I, I wish I could have done that. Um, but see, you do it not, not to get even or retaliate or, or, or even out of primary concern to protect yourself, though it has that effect. But you're doing it out of love for the aggressor. It's a very Jesus kind of way of responding to violence. You do it out of love to the aggressor because you want them to experience their, the, the consequence of their own violence so they'll wake up to how wrong this is. You see, it's an educational thing. Parents, to parent children in a kingdom way looks something like that. It's about giving choices in age-appropriate ways and letting kids experience the consequence of those choices. I, I read a book this week. Believe it or not, I, I read a book this week. Ooh, first time. Uh, and, and it was a book on parenting. It actually was the first book I've ever read on parenting. I, I, I like theology, other stuff, not so much. But, but uh, I, I, Mary Van Sickle gave me this book. It's called uh, Parenting with Love and Logic. And it really is good because it, it gets this point in a profound way. They don't use kingdom language when they're uh, discussing this. But uh, parents, I encourage you to get this book. It, 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 uh, it shows how the, the parenting with the kind of squish model, because I told you so, it just, well, sometimes it's necessary when kids are younger, uh, it, 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 it doesn't allow kids to grow in their capacity to become morally responsible decision makers, which is the main job of parents, to, to raise those kids in that way. By giving kids choices, age-appropriate age choices, you're empowering them to be decision makers. You're dignifying them. And, and by allowing them to experience consequences of wrong choices, you're letting the consequences do the teaching uh, and, and, and raising them to be people who internalize their moral principles rather than just, just being people who comply with the law. You see, if we operate, if we parent strictly out of authority, because I said so, what happens is that on the one hand, uh, because your, your, your kids are made in the image of God and they're made to be morally responsible decision makers, if you just parent with, I told you so, they're going to become embittered towards you as they get older. And when we parent just out of our authority, uh, what we're really saying is, is you're not capable. We're communicating a message. You're not capable of making responsible choices. You're incompetent at making responsible choices. You're de-dignifying them. And when we parent just out of authority, what happens is this. They'll do the right thing. Johnny, do this. Well, they'll do it because you're the parent. But they're only doing it because you're the parent. They're only doing it out of authority. And we raise kids to, to the only motivation they ever have for doing the right thing is out of sheer authority. They never have their own reasons for doing the right thing. And that's not really an enlightened way to live. I don't do this because there's a law that says not to. No, we want to have people who, who, who have that inside of them. And if kids only learn the authority motivation for doing the right thing, guess what happens when the authority isn't there? When I was at Bethel, I saw this happen uh, quite a bit. Kids who came from really strict homes. And the parents mean well. They're trying to protect their kids from all the evil in the world, so they just impose these, you know, they just kind of control them. But see, some of these kids come up and they're very embittered. They're angry at, at authority. And then some of these kids, when they got out of their parents' authority, uh, they became the craziest wild party animals in the world. Uh, they made students at the U of M look like monks. I mean, <laughs> they, they, because see, they never learned how to make decisions on their own. They only did it if there's a law there that says don't do that. And that was right in their face. And since that's not there anymore, they have no idea of moderation. They can't make responsible decisions. Plus, they're angry. And so they just, some of them anyways, just sort of imploded. 
parents, you need to give your kids age-appropriate choices um, and, and allow them to experience the consequences of, of, of those choices. It takes a lot of wisdom. It takes a lot of discernment. How, how much freedom do you give? What limits do you impose? What consequences do you impose? It's a lot easier just to say, I told you so, which is maybe one of the reasons why we do that so much. But, but uh, it squishes the kids, and it doesn't raise them to be morally responsible decision makers. It, it takes wisdom and discernment. That's why it's good to have other eyes in on this. I have a village around you who's helping you discern the wisdom of, of raising your children. I'd encourage you to get this book and, and get the wisdom that it affords us. But it's so important that we are empowering our kids to be morally responsible decision makers. Uh, generally speaking, the older the kid gets, the more choices you need to give them and the greater the consequences are. Here's a chart that uh, is found in this book, Parenting with Love and Logic. And it just shows you how a as the kids get older, you give them bigger decisions. They encourage you, uh, the authors of this book encourage you to start really, really young. As, as soon as you can, start giving choices. Um, instead of, you know, just giving your child a gummy bear because you went potty on the toilet, oh, you get a gummy bear, give him a choice. Do you want a blue gummy bear or a red gummy bear? Not the greatest morally significant decision in the world, but it's appropriate for their age. You get to choose. You see, oh, you're a big girl, you, you get to choose. Or instead of saying, okay, time, time to get out of the bathtub, uh, give him a choice. Would you like to get out of the bathtub now or would you like to play for a, another minute or two? Or instead of just saying, put on your mittens, give them a choice. Would you like to wear gloves or would you like to wear mittens? You get to choose. You see, you're empowering them. As they get older, you know, you, you give them more choices with a little more consequence. So instead of just saying, hey, it's cold outside, put on your coat, which is really saying you're not capable of making, you know, your own choices on this. Why not say, it's cold out there, or would you like to wear a coat or a sweater? You might even say, you know, I'd encourage you to wear a coat, but you get to choose. Would you like just to wear a sweater? Um... And then if they wear the sweater and they end up freezing, well, that's the negative consequence. <laughs> and now there's limits. If it's 40 below zero, you might want to take a little more authority. But, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And then as kids get to be older, as they're teenagers, you've got to give them more choices and, and spell out greater consequences. It's really good, the older they get, to invite them in on, on thinking ahead of time. It's always good to have the consequences spelled out ahead of time. No surprises. And, and invite them in on deciding what some of the consequences should be. So if, if Marty, your son, is pulling D's in math, you want to get that grade up. So you might sit down with Marty and say, okay, Marty, this is not acceptable. We've got to get the, that grade up to a C or a B. So um, uh, what do you think would be uh, a good consequence if that grade doesn't come up? What would be appropriate? And if he's a normal teenager, he'd go, I don't know. So then you say, well, well here's some choices. <laughs> Uh, would you, you know, we need to spend, we'll, we'll, we'll need to spend more time on math. Now, remember, always have the punishment or the consequence related to the behavior. Don't, don't impose arbitrary things. Uh, God's wired the universe that the consequence is supposed to follow naturally from the behavior. So, so don't say, if you don't get a C, well, then you're not going to be able to go to McDonald's for a month. Because going to McDonald's has nothing to do with your math skills. But studying more math does. So, so say something like this. Well, Marty, uh, you can either uh, we can pull your curfew back an hour so you can study your math for an hour, or you can get up an hour early uh, and study your math, or when you come home from school, you can do an hour of math before you play your video games. You get to choose. <laughs> uh, but, of course, we're hoping that we don't have to go here because you're going to get your grade up. See, Now, when Marty doesn't get his grade up and you have to impose the consequence, here, it's really important, this book stresses, to be parental and stay calm. Let the consequence do the teaching. Don't get big. 
and, and you know, just scream with your authority. Um, you know, none of this, well, I told you so. If you were to listen to me, you wouldn't have this situation. No, no, no. Let the consequence do the teaching. Um, and so you just, as the kid's going ballistic, I just calmly say, you know, um, Marty, in fact, this book even encourages you to be compassionate. Uh, to say, Marty, I know it must really be frustrating to not be able to play your video games as much as possible, but Marty, I think we made a really good choice back then. Remember that choice we made when we agreed that you would take an hour uh, off of video games to, to work on your math? And that was a good decision, and as soon as that grade comes up, feel free to go back to playing video games as much as, uh, as you want to, and I'm sure you're going to do it. I bet you'll come home with a B. You see, you're, getting, you're empowering the kids. It's always important to give choices. Age-appropriate choices with age-appropriate consequences. One other thing before I get to my third point, and that's this. I, I, then again, on the other hand, <laughs> it's my conviction, and we teach this a lot around here, that, that uh, nonviolence is at the center of the gospel. Uh, loving your enemies, turning the other cheek, never retaliating, that is the centerpiece of the gospel. And because of that, I get asked quite a bit, quite frequently, by parents, uh, what do I think about spanking? Is spanking an appropriate uh, discipline? And about half the time, they all quote the proverb, um, uh, spare not the rod. It's in Proverbs. Spare not the rod. Use the rod. Otherwise, you hate your son. And that is often used as a justification for spanking your child. Now, before I even say anything else, I want to say this. Be careful. Always be careful. Pulling verses out of the Old Testament and, and uh, thinking you resolve issues on raising children or a lot of other issues as well on the basis of that one verse. Uh, I'd be careful about taking that one verse and saying, oh, therefore God wants us to spank our children because after all, Deuteronomy 21 says, if your child insults you, stone him to death. I'm serious. <laughs> now maybe there's times where you'd like to pull that verse out and use it as an authority, but I encourage you not to do that. So here's the thing. One could argue justifiably that when kids are little, you can't just let them always experience the consequence of their decision. If Johnny's over there playing with a light socket, you don't want to wait till he gets electrocuted and then go, hey, Johnny, what'd you learn today about playing with light sockets? No, that's not a good effort. You need to sometimes intervene. And one could argue that a little swat on the butt maybe is a good way to install, to anchor the threat that you're trying to teach them. That's language they understand. On the other hand, we need to be concerned that we're not teaching our kids that striking a person is an appropriate way to resolve an issue uh, or striking a person is an appropriate way to impose your will on them. And they, some kids grow up with that conclusion by virtue of being spanked. That has to be on the table as well. For my part, in my opinion, this isn't doctrine, but in my opinion, I, I a handful of times paddled my kids when they were being raised. I don't think I do that now, however. I, I have a different perspective. But if you are going to spank, um, I, I, the, the, the best wisdom I've seen says this. Uh, if you're going to spank, never do it out of anger. Uh, never do it using angry words. And uh, after the age of three or four, stop. Because now they're in a spot where they can start to learn from natural consequences. So uh, there's, there's that for what it's worth. Third point, final point in eight minutes. Lord, give me six things here. You may have noticed that when we become Abba's children, in the New Testament, there's a, a tremendous amount of beautiful, wonderful things that are said about us. The moment we become Abba's child, the Bible just declares these incredible truths about us. We have a, a page uh, of, of uh, these truths out at the, the, the hub. Uh, I, your identity in Christ statements. 
that I encourage everyone to memorize and internalize and picture Jesus saying them to you. They're just beautiful things. Uh, so, for example, the minute we submit ourselves to Abba, our, our Heavenly Father, uh, He calls us His beloved child. And we're declared perfectly righteous. We're filled with the fullness of God. This is just a little slice of some of the beautiful things that are said about us the moment we submit ourselves to, to God and become Abba's child. Uh, we are called a holy one, a saint. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing. We're, we're said to be holy and blameless and made perfect forever. The moment we come into the family of God, we are bathed with wisdom and understanding. Uh, we're given an eternally, infinitely rich inheritance. We're made to be inseparable from God's love. The moment we become Abba's child, he says about us that we are one over whom the Lord rejoices and sings and claps his hands. We're one for whom the Lord throws a party. The moment we come into the family of God and become Abba's child, brothers and sisters of one another, he says that we are complete in Christ and we're given a spirit of fearlessness and we become God's precious work of art. The moment we become Abba's child, we are said to be one who is more than a conqueror in all things and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us and on and on and on. Beautiful stuff, beautiful stuff. Now, do we usually or always think that way about ourselves and do we consistently act that way holy righteous blameless complete no we don't we don't and yet god says it's true about us doesn't he 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 loves us uh, ahead of time and he affirms us ahead of time despite our behavior and in fact the way that we are transformed according to the new testament is precisely by god declaring uh, that we are holy and blameless and spotless and all the other stuff ahead of time, despite our behavior. In other words, he says it beforehand, and that's what motivates us to begin to live a certain way. Because you are holy, well, then think that way and live that way. Because you're righteous, then think that way and live that way. Because you're my child, because you, you've got a spirit of fearlessness, well, then think that way about yourself and live that way. He affirms us up front. He loves us up front. Parents, parent your kid that way. Parents your child that way affirming them and loving them up front. In fact, this is, this is, I think, true of all kingdom motivation. The affirmation, the truth statement about who they are should be given up front ahead of time, and that's precisely how we're transformed. So parents, I encourage you to find opportunities to affirm your child in positive ways about who they are, regardless of what their behavior is. However, Terrible, however vile, however demonic their behavior is, affirm them. Even if they seem like they're full of hell, love the hell out of them. Affirm the hell out of them. You see, that's a kingdom way of approaching this. You just pile it on. In fact, here's, here's three principles. I, I, this is worth the price of admission right here. If you just get these principles and, and apply them, then it will be, uh, you'll, you'll be wonderful. Okay, okay. Number one, all, make all you are statements positive. All you are statements. This is about your identity. You are. Make, they should always be positive. I was in Target a couple months ago, and there's this lady. God bless her. Um, but I don't know what her kid did. The child was five or six. Or I don't know. But she was just reading him out in front of all the people in the store. It was just so sad. And saying things like, you are no good. You are love. You are a disgrace. You are. And then some stuff I couldn't even repeat here. It was just terrible. And see, uh, you are, when, when a parent says you are in the, in the child's mind and heart, that's an I am. The you are becomes an I am. And what, what was going on there is she was given, she was cursing this kid. He was inheriting a curse. And, and it's going to take a long time for that I am stuff gets in there very, 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 very deep as 
a lot of us know firsthand. And it takes a whole lot of kingdom living for it to gradually get out and be transformed. No, no, no. All you are statements should be positive. That means, secondly, that all negative statements should be about what you've done. What you've done is terrible. What you've done is, is hurtful. What you've done is selfish and so on. That's not about who you are. That's about what you've done. And then thirdly, in disciplining, I encourage you to always include contrasting the negative you've done with the positive you are. This is the way God does it. This is, this is parenting Ava style. Um, what you've done is, is, is dumb, but you're a smart kid. What you've done is cruel, but, but you're a nice kid. What you've done is, is, is really nasty, but you're, you're a good kid. And the contrast between those two, see, that you're installing in them a motivation now as they internalize that to start living in a way that's consistent with the UR statements. Make all the UR statements positive, the negative are about what you've done, and the contrast between these two is what transforms the child. That's what God does with us. That's why he piles it all up front. You are holy and righteous and blameless in Christ. What you've done is not consistent with who you are. That's what Paul does in Romans 6 when he's confronting them about, you know, should we sin that grace may abound? Paul goes, wait a minute. You are dead to sin. You are alive in Christ. You are united with Christ. You are buried with Christ. Therefore, he says in verse 11 of Romans 6, how can you go on living like this? You know, think about yourself that way and live that way. Which brings me to Abbasi as I close. Now you'll know why we titled this message the way we did. I was at a conference several years ago, and I, I heard this guy tell the story as he was doing uh, some work in Africa, in this little African village. Uh, he witnessed this event, and it involved a young man. I think his name was Abasi. I'm recounting what he was saying, so I may not just be quite, quite accurate, but I'll call him Abasi. And Abasi, this young man, had stolen a chicken from this guy. And somehow was caught in the uh, center of the village, this little dirt road that ran through this village. And this was the marketplace. And right in the middle of it, Abbasi was caught. And then the man from whom he stole the chicken approached him and grabbed his, his shoulders and said in a very stern but loving way to Abbasi, in the, in the hearing of, of all the others in the village who are now gathered around, he said this, or something like this. He said, Abbasi... This thing you have done is not you. You are the beloved son of your father, whose brother is our chief. Your father is a great man whom everyone looks up to, and you are his great son. Your father has honored our people by being a great builder and a courageous hunter. He has helped many build strong structures and provided food for many families. And we all know, Abbasi, that you will do the same, for you are his son. You have the integrity and strength of your father. We all know this. And you have the integrity and beauty of your mother. We all know this. You have the wisdom of our ancestors in you. We all know this. And you have the character and courage of our God. We all know this. This thing you have done is not you, Abbasi, for you are destined for greatness, and we all honor and love you. And at that moment, this man said, the folks from the village, the part of the tribe, begin to clap their hands. Around Abbasi. They're clapping for Abbasi. And Abbasi began to weep and embrace the man that he stole the chicken from, and he gave the chicken back to the man. This kingdom people is how we need to discipline our children. And this is how we need to conduct ourselves everywhere. Uh, you are this, and therefore what you've done is not consistent with who you are. But it doesn't change who you are. No, no, rather we change what you've done 
by affirming who you are despite what you have done. So parents, I encourage you to, uh, and all of us, to remember it takes a village. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to live in the kingdom. Be pursuing community with others. Uh, I encourage you to teach uh, your kids by giving them uh, age-appropriate decisions with age-appropriate consequences and then letting them experience those consequences. Protecting your kids from all the hardships of life is not going to be conducive to their growing to become a morally responsible decision maker. And finally, pile on the love and the affirmation up front on every opportunity, but especially in disciplining. Pile on the affirmation and contrast it with the behavior that you're trying to correct. Amen. I'm going to end in prayer, and as I do, I want to invite the prayer teams to come up here. And if you are here this morning and have any need whatsoever that, that, that we can help you with, I encourage you to come forward here, whether it's about parenting or marriage or finances or health or whatever. Uh, share it with these folks and let them pray with you. That's what, the, that's what the body of Christ is for. So, Father, as we leave this place, we thank you that you are our loving Heavenly Father who affirms us, our identity up front. Uh, and calls us righteous and holy and blameless and courageous up front. And we pray, Lord God, that as we leave this place, by the power of your Spirit residing within us, that we would be children who live in ways that bring honor to you, uh, who live in ways that carry out your will on earth as it is in heaven, uh, who live in ways that expand your family uh, by inviting others in on the kingdom. Let the beauty of your Spirit flow through us to a world that desperately needs to see it. In Jesus' name, and all of God's kids said... God bless you guys. Go out and do the Father's will.